Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University, and I am host of the Guidelines podcast. My co-host tonight is Roosh Joshi from University of Michigan. The topic for our guidelines tonight is the standard operating procedures and methodology for the development of practice parameters. And this, this is one in a series of guidelines podcasts that don't focus specifically on a specific uh, neurologic entity or specific central nervous system pathology, but rather focuses on topics that, are, that form the structure and the basis and the process by which uh, guidelines are developed. Our uh, guests tonight are Dr. Mo Biden and Dr. Anand Viravagu. They are respectively the uh, Guidelines Committee Chair and the Guidelines Committee Vice Chair. So we're definitely honored to have the top brass from the uh, Guidelines Committees join us tonight to help us to do a little bit better understand process by which uh, guidelines are developed, um, how you know each topic comes about and goes through the process of being uh, molded into the, the final documents that we get to read about in the journal. So without further ado, I will uh, allow our two guests to introduce themselves, and then they're going to speak uh, for a little bit regarding our uh, topic tonight. should be a great learning experience. So I will turn it over first to Dr. Biden. Great. Thanks very much, Brad, and appreciate the opportunity to be here and the great podcast that you run. I'm Mohammed Biden. I'm a neurosurgeon at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm the chair of the uh, Guidelines Committee for the CNS. The Guidelines Committee is what brings you the various guidelines that you have read or have come to rely upon. For example, there's guidelines related to uh, various uh, spinal disorders, uh, cranial disorders, related to brain tumors, related to uh, spinal cord injury, um, and there's uh, those guidelines are uh, published in the Red Journal. Once they're complete, they're publicly available. And the process of a guideline means that your section, so let's say you mostly do functional or brain tumor or spine or whatever it may be, your section would recognize that there's a lot of literature around a specific area such that high quality literature, maybe level one, level two, such that a guideline would be in order to help provide uh, guidance on management of patients. This might include what types of imaging to get in the ER, on what types of patients, uh, when to give steroids, when not to give steroids, any number of questions that you may be wondering about as a practicing neurosurgeon, the guidelines could help answer those. Now, the new thing that we have added that is very interesting in this scenario is practice parameters. And the concept of practice parameters is uh, brand new. That concept is uh, now a new option that's out there specifically for topics where there is not enough data for guidelines, but there might be lower quality data that can inform a practice parameter. That's where the practice parameters become important tools to uh, also help provide an expert uh, consensus around a specific area of clinical practice. And so maybe I'll stop there and uh, see if uh, my colleague, Dr. Viravagu, has any comments related to this. 
Yes, thank you, uh, Dr. Biden and Dr. Elder, for the kind invitation. Uh, my name is Anand Viravagu. I'm a uh, neurosurgeon at Stanford University and um, uh, serve as vice chair uh, and have been uh, really learning a lot from uh, Dr. Biden and, and Trish and the guidelines committee for the, the great introduction. I think, you know, I don't have too much to add, but um, I thought maybe I could share a little bit about the specifics of a practice parameter. And some of the um, tasks that are required to uh, result in a practice parameter. When you think about, in general, what a practice parameter is, it essentially comes down to it being a synthesis of the best available information supplemented by expert opinion on focused clinical topics. And that consists of a focused topic, PICO questions, practice parameters and discussion of the available evidence supporting those parameters and future research needs. There is a predefined methodology for how we approach these topics. As Dr. Biden mentioned, it generally begins with an intellectual curiosity within a section, for example, about what the topics of discussion are and where the uh, knowledge base maybe differs or is unclear. And, and practice parameters and guidelines in general attempt to shed some light in that world. And so you begin by nominating a topic, you then identify task force members, you develop PICO questions, you submit the topic outline to the committee, you then develop a literature search strategy, and oftentimes literature searches are informed by task force members and the CNS staff using a medical librarian. And then there's a literature search that, that, that are resulted, screened, and the articles are retrieved. You do an evidence analysis, and then you grade the available evidence. And that's where you start developing the parameters in writing, consensus development, peer review, and then an endorsement, publication, dissemination, and then eventually you'll review these practice parameters and update them as necessary. And it's it's a very predictable, for the most part, um, workflow so that each step is predefined in order to uh, not only allow for limited bias in the formation of a practice parameter, but also transparency such that if there are differing opinions, um, untapped uh, literature resources that we may be ignoring or don't see, those things are all considered before uh, step number 10, which is consensus development occurs. And I think that's sort of the specifics behind how you get from uh, the concept of a practice parameter, the concept of a, uh, a need for uh, an intellectual direction to something that can be endorsed by the CNS the, and, and, and others. That was an excellent summary. One thing that, that I'm curious about is the how how does a practice parameter how is that an interchangeable term with the word guideline or is that something are they is there overlap between the those two terms so practice parameter is a newer concept that we have to account for subject areas that don't have level 1 or high level evidence to support a guideline for a guideline you'd have to have very strong high level evidence and there would have to be an abundance of it to uh, support the creation and endorsement of a guideline. A practice parameter is generally an area that doesn't have that same 
level of evidence, but that still has some evidence behind it, such that you could provide some sort of consensus statement around um, the practice of that specific area. And then to the points that Anand was making, once you get to consensus development around the guideline or around the practice parameter specifically, so now you've essentially written your document. If you're on one of these practice parameter task forces, at this point, you've completed and written your document. You've made a recommendation around a specific clinical question. Then that goes to peer review by the Joint Guidelines Review Committee, known as the JGRC, of the CNS and the AANS. That's a joint committee that will review the document and then endorse the document. The document would then be published in uh, neurosurgery, disseminated, and then there's reviews and updates that are required. So every five years, guidelines and practice parameters get updated and uh, get re-reviewed to ensure that they're abiding by the latest literature. Great. For me, it sounds like a practice parameter is sort of a, an early, as a, as a technology or a, or a medication is being introduced in, into our field of practice parameter, maybe some of the first milestones that that would hit. And as evidence is accumulated, as stronger trials come out, things like that, then you can emerge into a, a guideline. Is, would that be a fair statement? That's one way to think about it. There's some things that may not necessarily have high quality evidence attached to them. And those are things that would remain as practice parameters. And then the highest quality evidence that has the strongest consensus behind it would be a guideline. Does the way that neurosurgery approaches the, these things with, with guidelines and practice parameters, does this differ from other specialties? Is it the same and, uh, you know, or, or is it fairly uniform across all the different, you know, do neurologists do it the same way in orthopedists? I'll just make a brief comment and then see if Anand has any comments to add. The Institute of Medicine generally provides uh, frameworks and recommendations around how guidelines are uh, published into various specialties. And those include a lot of important details. For example, ensuring that the guideline is not biased, ensuring that the guideline is not conflicted from, for example, industry. Um, and so there's a lot of important um, components to how uh, guidelines and practice parameters get passed. And they're highly regulated for a reason so that they can be trusted by our, uh, by our society and by our neurosurgeons. Um, Dr. Viravagu, any, anything to add? Yes, I, I agree, Dr. Biden. You know, the integrity of the guideline is probably the most, most important component of its visibility. If the guideline is for some reason seen as having been developed through the lens of interest or conflict of interest thereof, it can be uh, it can be very very difficult to disseminate and, and may not be uh, accurate. So that's a very very important component of the Institute of Medicine's mandates. You know, every subspecialty and every specialty uh, develops their guidelines a little differently, but we try to benchmark ourselves against uh, others, especially larger in larger specialties, to make sure number one that we are 
uh, efficiently generating uh, the guidelines uh, effectively with with uh, the appropriate amount of resources. And that's actually an active effort within the CNS Guidelines Committee now, which is to, to benchmark and ensure that, you know, there aren't new softwares, which we have discovered along the way, actually. Um, and there aren't new uh, techniques to be able to distill some of this information more reliably, faster, or more accurately. So we we attempt to benchmark ourselves as frequently as, as reasonable against the other societies. Do we seek when neurosurgical guidelines and, and practice parameters come come through and and pass through all the different hurdles that they need to pass through to get published, do we seek endorsement from from other groups? Do you know do tumor uh, guidelines go out to radiation oncology to, to seek their endorsement? We've had several guidelines where other specialties and other societies provide their endorsement towards our guidelines. This is a great credit to the high quality work that the guidelines committee and the infrastructure with uh, Trish and, and Kirsten and others uh, provide. And so there, we, we have been very fortunate from that standpoint to have other societies and other specialties recognize our guidelines. And generally guidelines, and, and when you read the Institute of Medicine's comments, it's all about the trustworthiness of the guidelines. And so, and to be trustworthy, they should be based on systemic review of the evidence, have a knowledgeable multidisciplinary panel of experts behind them, consider important patient subgroups and patient preferences as appropriate. All of our guidelines committees, for example, in the future, will have a patient representative. That wasn't the case previously. Um, they should be transparent in minimizing bias and conflict of interest. They should provide a clear explanation of the logical relationship between alternative care options and the health outcomes associated with them. And they should be reconsidered and revised as appropriate. So those are the elements of a trustworthy guideline. And in, in neurosurgery, you can rest assured as a member of the specialty that the guidelines that you receive follow all of those elements, are highly trusted, and are regarded often by other specialties as the uh, high mark of what a guideline should uh, look like. Anand, anything to add? I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I think that really captures the philosophy behind how a guideline should be developed. And as a result, it makes it easier for us to discuss and disseminate our guideline for endorsement with, for example, orthopedic partners, interventional pain partners for spine guidelines. Um, you can think of different societies such as NAS, uh, North American Spine Society, or the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. Um, these are these are subspecialties that um, often overlap with some of the pathologies that we treat. And when guidelines are developed to the Institute of Medicine standard, it uh, allows for a much easier negotiation regarding endorsement and collaboration. Great. Well, I, I do want to give our uh, res my resident co-host, Roosh, uh, an opportunity to ask some questions. Hey, everyone. My name is Roosh. I'm a second-year neurosurgery resident at the University of Michigan, um, and I've had the privilege of being one of the Guidelines Fellows this year. Um, so thank you all for letting me join and help out and participate with some of our guidelines that the CNS is presenting. Um, I have one question, I think, pertaining more specifically um, both to Dr. Biden and Dr. Viravagu's um, subspecialty as spine surgeons. Um, and it may be kind of a relevant case-based application of these practice parameters. 
Um, so within spine surgery, there's been a huge uptick in patient-specific prognostic models and the development of new technologies such as patient-specific implants, pre-contoured rods for deformity surgery. And I kind of wanted to pose the question to you guys, what is your threshold about instituting some sort of practice parameter to establish some sort of standardization for the use of you know, new technologies, whether they be software that help with decision-making for spine surgery or the implementation of new technologies um, Given the lack of existing clinical evidence, this sounds like this is something that might be more applicable for a practice parameter. So, so Roosh, great question. Um, as a guidelines fellow, your work is critical to what we do. I would say a few things. It's often not the latest and greatest that will make it into one of these efforts because there has to be a body of literature and data that supports that procedure or that particular um, healthcare outcome to occur. And so the body has to be there and to be supported in order for something to make it into a guideline or a practice parameter. And you as a guidelines fellow are a critical part of that. So guidelines must be transparent, must be free of conflict, but they also must be rigorous. And the rigor of guidelines is about initiating the systemic review using some of the tools that Anand discussed, and also ensuring that it's a holistic uh, review of the literature, finding and assessing the individual studies, and that's something that takes time. You have to dig into each study, synthesizing the body of evidence, and then reporting. And so all of that has to occur for a guideline to be considered rigorous, and you as the fellow, um, and, and generally the guidelines fellows as a program, are heavily involved in uh, ensuring that type of uh, rigor. Anand, your thoughts? I think that it's a good question about emerging technologies or thought processes behind patient management. And the, the key here is what Dr. Biden mentioned is that it's not usually the latest and greatest that has a significant amount of literature that has fairly evaluated the technology. And um, I think that as you get closer to, for example, a trial that uh, may not randomize, uh, so you know you may not have the highest quality evidence, but a trial that fairly evaluates the utilization of a specific technology or decision support algorithm, then it becomes a matter of expert opinion in combination with that almost high evidence, right? Uh, those trials. To be, to be able to conclude fairly that this technology was evaluated and it, and it shows X, Y, and Z in terms of uh, prognosis for patients uh, and its applicability. So I think that um, what you'll find is that uh, the latest and greatest uh, just doesn't have that, that body of knowledge yet. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys, for your input. And a quick follow-up I had um, regarding you know, this topic is do you guys foresee, you know, within the field of neurosurgery, do you foresee, um, you know, in the next five or 10 years that this kind of holistic decision-making process is something that may be implemented for guidelines, um, at least from a clinical decision-making standpoint? Um, well, there is, there is today in the process of guidelines, you know, I would say there is a holistic view in terms of the literature and in terms of ensuring that 
uh, various viewpoints, including a patient viewpoint, are represented. Um, the guideline is only as good and as strong as the literature that underlies it. And so if you're an author out there publishing high quality studies, that's very valuable to the future of guidelines because you're the one publishing the studies that are gonna end up in the guideline. If you're one of our guidelines fellows, you are consuming that information and uh, summarizing that and placing that in um, for the consumption by the specialty as a holistic view. So a neurosurgeon out in practice doesn't have to read you know, a thousand papers to understand how they should manage a, a specific area, acute spinal cord injury, let's say, they can instead read the guideline and understand how best to manage it. And then as a patient, you're getting the best standard of care because that's the consensus that's in the guideline. So I, I do think that's what we have today. And I think that's what we'll continue to have. You know, when I think of, of the guidelines and all the effort that goes into it and, and, and the, the endorsement by our national group, I wonder, are there implications uh, of guidelines in the, in the realm of you know, the medical legal aspect uh, or reimbursement? Do, do, have you seen those kind of different forces um, use guidelines in those arenas? So guidelines would um, not necessarily be utilized in those types of ways you know, medical legal, a guideline could end up being used medical legally, often to protect the physician, because for the most part, what we see is that our physicians have uh, done what's expected. Perhaps there was a bad outcome, but they've done what was expected. And the guideline is often used to show, you know, you know, this physician actually, you know, did A, B, and C, which is what the guideline says. Um, in terms of a guideline around medical legal, generally, we don't see things like that per se. Um, but we do have, for example, a, a practice parameter around um, work leave uh, uh, in discussion and in development. And so we do have a number of interesting areas in development. And if you have an idea for a guideline, you every section in our specialty has a guidelines representative and a guidelines chair. And you can take it to your specific section guidelines chair. You can certainly send it to us, to myself, Anand, or Trish. You can also uh, take it to your section chair for guidelines and make a specific recommendation around a particular guidelines topic. Anand. Do, you, do you think insurance companies ever use guidelines to justify um, not reimbursing for, for, you know, say like an emerging technology, um, any, any, any sign of stuff like that? We've seen more cases where guidelines are used to emphasize to insurance companies that they need to pay for things. And they recognize that, you know, if a novel technology comes out, it's not going to be in the guideline from X, Y, and Z year. Um, but we've seen more instances of the opposite where the guideline is utilized to uh, pressure the insurance company to provide payment or reimbursement for a procedure. I would agree and add that um, when we look at um, those that are uh, serving on the rapid response committee, 
guidelines uh, are often a source of strength for us in uh, in writing the letters back. And if there is something where you know there is an experimental call out for a specific technology, it's part of the reason why we try to review the guidelines frequently, because what was once experimental technology in neurosurgery, we move so quickly that it may now be standard of care. So it's important for us uh, in the guidelines, on the guidelines team to review the guidelines, look at emerging and experimental technologies that have been called out in the past, and update those chapters or guidelines as appropriate so that they are um, on par with the current uh, standard of care or, or practice pattern. We're running a little low on time. I do have one more question. Um, the You mentioned before that the process by which guidelines and practice parameters come to fruition has evolved. Uh, you now include a, a patient representative and uh, things of that nature. Um, how does this continue to evolve? Does this, you know, it, is is there at some point a role for AI in, in uh, the development of guidelines to be able to uh, respond even more rapidly to changes in the literature? It's a great question. There are several apps um, that Anand was, you know, uh, mentioning previously that are um, programs that are utilized to bring in the necessary information. The body of literature is vast today. You know, medical literature um, is exponentially increasing in weight and size and scope. And so when you're looking to create a guideline, you know, 20 years ago, the number of papers that you would have had versus today are vastly different. And so it's very important to be able to review those papers, adjudicate those papers. There are some programs that make that job a little easier, but you still have to review them directly and to do the adjudication directly in terms of level of evidence and in terms of where this paper falls. Now, in the future, that's certainly something that's possible to change. Uh, hard to predict, but certainly a lot of those things are coming into fruition on every other aspect of life. And so maybe it will impact guidelines. You know, guidelines, I would say, are going to be maybe a little bit slower to change because the bar is so high for them. But certainly you could see the same things that are impacting other aspects of life um, playing in here. Um, Anand, any thoughts on that? No, I, I agree. I mean, I think as we uh, learn more about how to draw wisdom from a large body of knowledge, it'll be, I think, um, the next logical step that a uh, engine designed to help us draw wisdom from a large body of knowledge, which, which is essentially what a guideline is, is likely to emerge. And, you know, being in the heart of Silicon Valley here, I see it very frequently. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank our guests very much for uh, joining us today. Uh, I think that was an excellent uh, conversation and on a very important topic. I also want to thank uh, both of our guests for their uh, tireless work leading our guidelines committee, uh, which uh, represents all of us as neurosurgeons and, and supports uh, every neurosurgeon's efforts in their uh, daily practice. For our listeners, uh, Thank you for listening. Please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And to everyone, have a great night. Thank you.